Hi everyone, welcome to the podcast edition of the Urban Tech Digest. In this podcast, I speak to the leaders from founders, investors, to government leaders who are playing a hand in shaping the future of cities with technology. My name is Alan Chen, and I'm joined here by the first guest on the show, Clay Gardner. Clay is the Chief Innovation Officer of the City of San Jose, where he spearheads the Mayor's Office of Technology and Innovation to drive tech-enabled initiatives to improve the city. He and his team are leveraging emerging technologies and business models to address some of the most pressing challenges in our community. Welcome to the show, Clay. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. Great. So I think to start off, uh, I'd love to first explore your background um, before you even became Chief Innovation Officer. Now, I understand that you used to do YouTube videos of yourself singing, and that you know led to one another and eventually led you to on stage in, in China, uh, essentially becoming a pop star. Could you tell me a little more about that? Yeah, well, I certainly would have never thought that I'd be working in local government you know, when I was on stage in China back in high school. But it's funny how things work out. And, you know, I had the opportunity to do music and entertainment and to see um, and learn about countries that were very different from the U.S. in terms of governance models. And, you know, through that early exposure, I've always been interested in how societies engage with public policy and tech and how that differs across the world. I actually joined the city back in 2019, so right before the pandemic. So I got to see a little bit what government was like, you know, prior to that state. And I joined from Google, where I was working as a product marketing manager for Nest. So smart home products, sort of like the the most base, um, you know, iteration of the smart city or technology in the home. But now, you know, in this role, really thinking about how that extends across communities. And it's been really exciting. Uh, We work on everything from digital inclusion and connectivity to public safety to emerging mobility. And... I think this team has been really pivotal in driving progress towards a lot of the opportunities, which are really interdisciplinary. So it's no longer the case that, you know, one department can really tackle something like homelessness or a digital divide. You really need to be thinking about how to facilitate that cooperation. So never would have thought that China would be relevant to working at the city of San Jose. Lo and behold, when I was interviewing for this job, uh, that's really what Mary Liccardo wanted to talk about, you know, not just the the music career, but, you know, what we can learn from other cities. And I've really been passionate about taking that view of, you know, what's the best globally that we can do in our local context. That's an amazing background. I think with all that time spent in China, I'm sure your Chinese are already much better than mine. Um, so now let's talk about your role as Chief Innovation Officer for San Jose. Uh, could you sort of share uh, what your responsibilities are in this role? And also, how do you interact with some of the other departments under the mayor's office? Yeah, so we're interesting in that, you know, we work directly for Mayor Licardo. So we get kind of the overarching view of departments and, and problems in the city. And he's kind of the voice in that regard. But in terms of the execution, we work very closely with not just um, city departments, but nonprofits and groups like the California Emerging Technology Fund, which is an outside agency that really works to address the digital divide to private companies. Um, you know, most recently with Velodyne, for example, on a LIDAR pilot to, you know, improve our knowledge of traffic safety incidents. So it's a really wide range of partners that we engage. I think part of the big issue is, you know, when you work for a city and you're the chief innovation officer, you could really theoretically be working on anything and everything. 
it's extremely broad scope in terms of the problems that we have facing, you know, 1 million people in one of America's most diverse cities from a language perspective, cultural perspective, um, economic perspective. And so we also have, you know, in addition to that broad scope, really limiting factors in the public sector. So low, res low resources, uh, my team doesn't have a budget apart from the staff itself. We are already one of the most understaffed, under-resourced large city halls in America. So that's just from the outset. And we have low authority, you know, we don't have direct control over our departments. So when we want to get things done, we have to really ruthlessly prioritize given the time, budget, and you know, authority constraints. And so we work really by, with, and through our partners to accomplish these policy objectives. Got it. Uh, you know, Clay, one of the uh, things I've noticed over the last five years is it's been a, a growing number of chief innovation officers um, popping around major cities in the U.S. I think the top major 10 cities in the U.S. do have their own chief innovation officer or some type of chief technology officer. Could you sort of shed some light on what's really happened over the last five years that has led to the creation of these kind of roles? Yeah, it's also really cool because we have a Slack group with all the chief innovation officer type teams in the city or in the U.S. So, you know, we're always kind of sharing things that we're working on or things that we come across that we think could be scalable. And I think that's the beauty of this space is really, you know, it's, it's not a zero sum game. You know, it's city to city collaboration, even internationally is so possible, uh, even just, you know, in the knowledge sharing sense. Um, you know, I think you're seeing more chief innovation offices because it's reflective of the rate of changing expectations that our residents have for cities. We're constantly coming into contact with new tech and concepts that the city doesn't necessarily have a structure for evaluating or deploying, nor the mandate or the resources to do so. So we like to think of ourselves as both like a capacity adding unit to help um, departments think through really thorny challenges that we haven't had to think through before, but also to look to the horizon and scope issues, technologies, opportunities that we think the city should be considering in our planning process now, you know, five, 10 years out. So that's, you know, why we've had conversations on urban air mobility and autonomy so early so that we can really think about what the city's role is in this type of process and where our investment's gonna have the most ROI for the residents. And I'd say too, you know, kind of like I was saying earlier, a lot of our issues are just so interdisciplinary and you really need a team that that's mandate is broad enough to think, um, you know, full scope about some of these issues and to be innovative with how we actually design solutions. It's fascinating. Is there a city you have in mind that has done this exceptionally well and that you're looking to follow the footsteps of? So I have, I have to say San Jose just because San Jose, you know, is, is my town and we, we definitely do a lot of great work and have to acknowledge that. But I will say we see all kinds of really interesting projects and it's hard to say like one city is just objectively more innovative than another, but in certain areas you see just a lot of progress. Um, for example, I think Detroit has done an amazing job when it comes to connectivity uh, in their low income communities and really bridging what was a very entrenched digital divide. So their program and structure and, and how they've approached that from a, a metrics and evaluation standpoint, I think is definitely at the leading edge. Look to cities in Europe like Copenhagen in terms of 
their ability to do urban redevelopments. I mean, most recently, you probably wouldn't think of Paris as like a super innovative out front city, you know, maybe over the last couple of decades. But with the bike transformation that that city has undergone in the last couple of years, I mean, the number of people biking there now has just skyrocketed. And that's in large part due to really great planning and, and policies that they've in place or put in place to support biking and bike safety and to incentivize that. So I think it, you know, when you look around, you see different elements in different places that we can learn from. Got it. Uh, I'm curious to see if some of these cities you mentioned, like Copenhagen or Detroit, have undertaken some different type of framework that enables them to uh, move through these initiatives uh, a lot more successfully and more efficiently. Um, so, for example, is there some type of different organizational structure that they're operating on, or is there a different type of streamlined decision making that they're undertaking? You know, in terms of frameworks, I think you have to really understand like what are your what are your natural resources, so to speak, in your city that you have that you can really take advantage of that might have actually been neglected, and like what are the drivers for growth and inclusion that are already maybe happening but maybe the city is just neglected and for us um just to raise an example like that you know we've been trying to bridge digital divide come up with new funding models for that we've kind of created this really interesting device refurbishment model knowing that we have so many oems and tech companies in san jose that have just in their warehouses in the city like hundreds of thousands of devices that are just not being used and destined for a landfill. And so we said, well, what if we could take those devices, which are like kind of a natural resource of sorts in Silicon Valley, refurbish them and then take the profits and reinvest in like new devices for students that don't have access to laptops that they need. So I think, you know, Copenhagen and their urban redevelopment, they had a lot of, you know, areas where there was a lot of blight and industrial buildings that were kind of run down. And I think they've just done a great job. And I personally haven't been there, but I've read a lot of case studies and, and seen uh, videos. They've done a great job of making those spaces livable, turning them into housing, parks, you know, and like they're actually spaces people want to be. So how do you go from, you know, a, an urban space being this this blight, this this thing that people see as a, an obstacle for the city to actually the the most attractive thing about it? Yeah, it's amazing to see how Copenhagen has transformed its aging infrastructure to spaces that are both livable and vibrant uh, and now are serving as a model for other cities to follow. Uh, you already mentioned some of the projects you're working on, such as the Green Tech Refurbishment and the Urban Renewal Fund. Now, another project I'd like to talk to you about is this community Wi-Fi program that just launched uh, in the city of San Jose. Now, connectivity is essential just like food and water, yet there's thousands of San Jose residents that lack access to broadband understand that your department has taken initiative to bring Wi-Fi access to these residents. Can you sort of share with me uh, more about this project that you're working on? Yeah, so back in 2017, we did a study with Stanford and found that we actually had closer to 100,000 residents that lacked home access to the internet, which is just insane. And it's you know, mostly black and brown families, low income, you know, it intersects with poverty and other issues of equity pretty severely. And this is in the middle of Silicon Valley, right? So you think about the, the access to jobs at a Google or in IT and, you know, all of that 
prosperity which is happening next door to people who have no no way to even get on the internet i mean there's just there's such a disconnect there and so that has been a really guiding activity for us in the mayor's office you know is how do we bridge that digital divide as silicon valley and there's a lot of different pieces to that puzzle you know the connectivity aspect is one thing we know that cost still is a, is a big issue for a lot of people even with the low income internet plans for like ten dollars a month that's still a barrier and so we're trying to address that cost piece we're trying to increase the access and knowledge of where people can get access so we've got almost 300,000 residents covered um, geographically in our east side of the city to free community Wi-Fi, which is in partnership with our school districts. We've got downtown, you know, free open access community Wi-Fi. We've also worked with our libraries to do things like have free hotspots that people can rent and check out. And, you know, they can get device access and things like that. Some people actually need uh, digital literacy training and that's, takes a lot of different forms. And we have, you know, as a diverse city, so many customers, so to speak. And we have seniors who, you know, want to learn how to make a social media account so that they can keep in touch with their families. We have people who have been recently, um, you know, exiting the criminal justice system who need to figure out how to get a job and how to write an email and create a LinkedIn account and communicate, you know, their skills to employers in a digital way. So we work not only to install the infrastructure and to make that available, but also with the community organizations to figure out what does this specific community need, whether it's an age community or an ethnic language, income oriented um, arrangement. There's just so much diversity in that. I understand that one of the goals here is to deliver Wi-Fi access to 300,000 residents. I'm curious, how far along are you on this progress and what are some of the other action items you guys are taking to get to that point? So we just installed um, two new sections of this larger 300,000. Um, so two new high schools have just gone online, I believe as of this week. So that's really exciting. Um, we know from looking at the numbers of the current deployments that we've already seen, I think it was in July of 2022, uh, 100,000 people logging on. So that's pretty insane. Like we've done really no marketing around this Wi-Fi network, but you know, if a hundred thousand people are, are logging on, you know, for these sessions, it, I think it just demonstrates that there's this organic need to have access at home or just in the neighborhood, you know, walking around in your car, wherever. And that's, um, that's been really exciting. I think part of the work that we need to do now is to understand qualitatively, you know, why are people you know engaging with this network you know how has it actually improved their lives you know whether it's it has it helped them improve their economic status has it helped them connect to schooling i don't think we have enough data yet to really understand the impact although you know there's lots of studies that say that the base connection to the internet in and of itself you know has so many tangential benefits in that way so i think the next step is to really get smarter about those investments now, let's talk about this other project you're doing with Helium, which is this blockchain-enabled uh, network that's utilizing IoT devices to drive uh, connectivity. Um, so you guys are deploying and installing different Helium hotspots uh, to volunteer residents and different businesses uh, through a pilot. 
Could you sort of talk me through this and you know how this program came about and you know how it's going? Yeah, so this is also actually part of our um, sort of funding model exploration for digital inclusion, addressing that that cost barrier. So the helium pilot was really interesting. It was it was a pretty small, but I think significant foray into Web3 space and definitely the first time that our city has engaged with a decentralized network or even just any kind of decentralized infrastructure. Um, so the way that Helium works is that, you know, we have network which is not really owned by any one entity. Um, people can buy these access nodes and it supports a lower one network, which we think would be really interesting for some smart cities applications, uh, especially around like monitoring climates, um, things like that. And the monetary piece was that actually the incentive for rolling out this the, the uh, network basically provides people who own the nodes with crypto. So we, as a city, bought um, 20 of these access nodes, and we have been experimenting you know, with, you know, is this something that's sustainable? Reality is I don't necessarily know that it's actually sustainable compared to things like the green tech program we have with Revivin, so the device refurbishments um, engagement there. You know, of course, we're in sort of a crypto winter, you know, when it comes to the asset prices. So that certainly hasn't helped at all. But I think we are trying to, you know, be as open minded as possible about what different applications of Web3 could be for us without, you know, going all in or like, you know, the mayor taking his paycheck in crypto or, you know, going all in on, on Bitcoin, like some sovereign countries. No, I think it uh, really speaks to the openness of your team in the mayor's office in embracing such emergent technologies to solve these different challenges and also just to work with a multitude of you know, different solutions uh, to drive connectivity. Now, I'd like to spend the you know, next few minutes maybe talking through how companies can better work with governments. Uh, I think it's a bit of a stigma you know, um, towards cooperating governments and that governments just very slow and sometimes can be more of a barrier towards innovation than a driver. Um, you know, personally, I've experienced um, the same tribulations and trials uh, when working at Lilium, uh, where I was tasked with you know striking public-private partnerships uh, with governments on a local, state, and national government to enable um, urban air mobility. Um, it was incredibly challenging because of the entrenched. Um, sort of stakeholders, um, but also just the, the politics that come into play. Can you sort of talk to me through, you know, how companies can better work uh, with governments uh, so that they can unlock innovation and drive faster progress? So I think this is actually a really interesting area that my team works on specifically. So we, we try to communicate as best as possible to companies that we think have interesting tech solutions for our city, like what are our problems and how do you quantify and communicate those problems in a way that I think private sector actors and, and entrepreneurs can understand, I think is really important because to your point, there's just a lot lost in communication. You know, our timelines, our working styles, our risks are frankly different, right? Like if something goes wrong in the public sector, it's just a lot more scrutiny and, you know, risk of maybe something really going wrong, like people being hurt. And I think that's something that 
the best companies that I've worked with, they, they really get that. They have an empathy for what kind of resources we have at our disposal. Some companies, they come to me and they kind of expect me to make a buying decision, you know, within, you know, two weeks. And, you know, I don't even have a purchasing role in the city. So it's, there's not the time taken maybe to even understand, like, how does our city actually make decisions? And a lot of it is really consensus, you know, not just formally with the council and the legislative process, but just internally, you know, right now we've been thinking a lot about urban air mobility and our big calculus is really like, should, should a city like San Jose with all kinds of problems be focusing any time at all in thinking about something which might carry like five passengers at a time and, you know, come online, you know, five, 10 years from now, you never know with the industry marketing. But again, I think my role is to be that facilitator and say, let's take an optimistic look towards this technology and see, okay, what are the tangential benefits of something like urban air mobility? Does investment in this space actually accelerate things that we really care about, like walking or public transit? You know, if we create vertiports, is that actually unlock new funding sources for transit improvements that we want to see that are going to benefit more people? And how can we plan in a way which actually gets ahead of some of the disruption or issues that you see with a lot of shifts in technology. So when we move to micromobility at first, I don't feel like there's actually that much collaboration between government and the providers, right? Like they just kind of threw the scooters on the street and we had to work back from that state of distrust and, you know, lack of cooperation. The same was true of ride hailing. Like the Uber model is kind of, you know, steamroll cities and just deploy. But I think what I'm noticing now is a new model where companies are definitely more interested in trying to understand like where we're coming from. And at the same time, we have to, as government, be open-minded while still scrutinizing and not be blockers when we don't have to be. Of course, there's processes that we have to follow, but you know, it's a, how, how quick can we be to actually make the evaluation on whether something is worth pursuing or not? That cuts time, which allows us to actually serve our residents in a faster way. Yeah, thanks so much, Clay, for sharing that background and you know, your city's approach towards uh, thinking about new technologies and that sort of framework for uh, prioritizing what's important to you know, tackle today versus uh, what to tackle f uh, for the future. Now, we talked about urban mobility, um, but I also wanted to pick your brain on the autonomous vehicle space. Uh, California is, you know, filled with self-driving uh, car testing. Um, you know, for example, San Francisco, there there is cruises and the Waymos are world floating around the cities. Um, you know, I think Waymo and, and Cruise are even now offering commercial service. Um, and I'm curious, I guess, to hear your opinion on on these technologies, uh, where things are today, and what still needs to happen. And curious what the role of the city is in in bring this, uh, I guess, technology into uh, operation? So I think there's definitely a role and we were actually pretty early with autonomous vehicles. So back, you know, a couple of years ago, we did a pilot um, with Daimler and IDEO and we were thinking about, you know, community acceptance and what was even just the understanding that different communities had of autonomous vehicles. And, you know, at that time, I think it was still too early, like technology wasn't really there yet. And, you know, it's been one of those things where for, for decades, I feel like people have been talking about, well, we're just on the cusp, you know, and next year, or the year after that, 
we're going to see like autonomous vehicles everywhere and it's just going to scale uh but for all, all kinds of reasons you know we still are at like this cuffs point where it's it seems like it's getting closer there's more acceptance there's more pilots happening not just in the us but look at china with robo taxis and baidu's play there i mean i think i'm personally more excited about what we're starting to see in autonomous buses rather than just like autonomous smaller vehicles because we know that there's just a huge um bus driver shortage in the united states a lot of bus drivers are going to be retiring and you know in in a way that's not replacing labor you know how do we compensate for you know this job which is actually really difficult it's a you know it's a job with really um difficult conditions you know especially in, in a place like san jose does an autonomous bus allow a bus driver to be more of a customer service representative or you know do public safety or social services or you know do something which actually is maybe more uh you know positive of an experience as a career and i think there's just a lot of room for autonomous buses to be really interesting in our city and part of it is what's what's the investment that cities should be making in the fixed infrastructure for autonomy so should we have dedicated you know autonomy lanes and you're starting to see that you know in different cities as a discussion should we be investing in fixed camera or lidar infrastructure safety measures uh, to enable you know a vehicle which is not just driven by its onboard infrastructure but also interacting with the street and what protocols need to exist for the vehicles to be able to be interoperable with that infrastructure so i think there's a lot of questions where the city is definitely going to play a role even if it's not in the actual regulation of the vehicles itself as is the case in california you know that's the state level that really dictates that but the cities are ultimately you know where those vehicles are going to be interacting with the curb and public safety you know how does a firefighter respond to you know an autonomous vehicle that starts going on flames and you know how do we turn it off how do we engage with it there's a lot of questions and you kind of see that in san francisco already with um some you know recent incidents in san jose there's a viral video of a tesla on full self-driving mode kind of going around the city and it actually ends up running into one of our bike lanes so it knocks over a bunch of bike bollards and you know you just can't help but wonder like wow you know what if someone was there or and i guess there, there's a discrepancy and sort of asymmetry right now in how technology is being deployed you have that example but then you have examples of of companies like cruise really working closely with the city to deploy so i think um to answer your question in an extremely long-winded way yes like there's a huge role for us to be playing here yeah i think you make a really good point around the use cases because as much as autonomous vehicles will lower the price of ride share service and passenger vehicles there's still this fundamental driver shortage that's happening right now that's really challenging um, this idea of resiliency not only in bus operators but also truck drivers and highways uh, these trucking carriers are looking towards autonomous solutions today not just a way to reduce their costs but also to secure their supply chain so they don't have any supply chain disruption to your point about tesla you know i think we're really getting to this point where all these terms like full self-driving or autopilot or even just autonomous vehicles are being thrown at our faces and there needs to be some level of education and to users on what these terms really exactly mean uh, for their driving and what they should be doing in the car so i think it's going to be really interesting what these next few years are going to be like 
Now, I know we're running out of time now, so I'd like to maybe use the last a couple minutes to hand it back to you. Let's say, you know, a founder is listening to this call and, and wants to engage uh, with the city of San Jose to work on a project together. You know, what's the best way for them to get in touch? That's a great question. I think, you know, we do put out a ton of public material and that's kind of like the, the blessing and also sometimes the curse of cities is that, you know, we, we don't actually have much um, incentive to guard you know, our, our trade secrets, so to speak, it's all more or less out there. So, you know, if you're a company and you've got a solution that you think, you know, can be great for mobility in a city or, you know, to help us address problems in public safety or connectivity, you know, just take some time to read those plans that have been put out by each city to understand, you know, what are our challenges? What investments have we made so far? And if you can couch it in that language, then I think city staff is going to be able to have a much more productive conversation because you're going to really understand like what kind of budget was made available for this. Like that's all public, you know, sometimes people come to us, you know, they're like, okay, well you have like $2 million to like invest in this technology. And it's like, no, like, because we set our budgets, you know, cyclically every single year and it's all public. You can see which departments have money for what purpose. And um, I think there's also opportunities that I've seen really great companies help us identify federal grants or state grants that we didn't even know about for innovation projects or pilots and they say, hey, you know, we can do a joint application for this or, hey, like we have a case study from another city that we've worked with on a similar pilot and this is how it worked and you can talk to them. Part of it is just helping us to socialize towards some of those problems and, and those new concepts. Thanks so much for sharing those tips. It was really great to learn about these projects and initiatives that you and your team are taking on to improve the lives of San Joseans. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Thank you.